Hello, and welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges. I'm your guest host, Casey Paul Griffiths, and I'm the author, along with Mary Jane Woodger, of 50 Relics of the Restoration. And I'm happy to take this week uh, to walk you through Doctrine and Covenants, sections 23 to 26. So if you have your scriptures, you might want to open them up, and we're just going to walk through these sections and talk a little bit about the historical events that are surrounding them, and some of the things that the Lord had to say to Joseph Smith and his friends uh, in these sections. So, uh, Sections 23 to 26 are kind of the aftermath of the organization of the church. The church is organized in April 1830, and everything's going great. There are about uh, 60 members of the church at this point in time, so it's still really, really small. And these sections, uh, sections 23 through 26, kind of show some of the persecution uh, that came in the aftermath of the organization of the church. Again, the church is really small, and one thing to keep in mind is that the church is really centered around three families in three different locations at this point in time. There's the Smith family, Joseph Smith's family in Palmyra, New York, and the people there like Martin Harris and Porter Rockwell that support them. There is the Whitmer family in Fayette, New York, and that's where the church is actually organized. And then there is the Knight family that live in Colesville, New York, which is down south uh, near Harmony, Pennsylvania, where Emma Smith grew up. And the first revelation that we're dealing with today, section 23, is really a series of five short revelations given to Oliver Cowdery, Hiram Smith, Samuel Harrison Smith, Joseph Smith Sr., that's the prophet's father, and Joseph Knight Sr., who's the head of the branch down in Colesville. When these revelations were actually first published in the doctor, in the 1833 Book of Commandments, they were published separately as, as chapters uh, 17 through 21. Uh, but when the Doctrine and Covenants was published again in 1835, they had combined all these revelations into a single section, and it's remained that way ever since. So let's walk through a couple things that the Lord says to these individuals. For instance, verses 1 and 2 are addressed to Oliver Cowdery. Oliver at this time is the um, second elder in the church, and a time when there's really only two elders in the church to speak of. Uh, but the Lord does give some pointed warnings to Oliver that play out over the rest of his life. For instance, verse 1 Behold, I speak unto you, Oliver, a few words. Behold, thou art blessed, and thou art under no condemnation, but beware of pride, lest thou should enter into temptation. Make known thy calling unto thy church, and also before the world, and thy heart shall be open to preach truth from henceforth and forever. Amen. Now, there's some really, really careful warnings to Oliver Cowdery here, specifically that he's supposed to beware of pride. Only a couple months after this revelation was given, Oliver enters into contention with Joseph Smith over some of the wordings in the Articles and Covenants in section 20. And then he became embroiled in a dispute over who had the right to receive revelation in the church. This is covered in section 28 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Oliver, uh, for the next eight years, is going to be one of the most important leaders of the church, even co-president uh, of the church. And yet, this warning that he's going to struggle with pride uh, resonates with him throughout the rest of his life. Wilford Woodruff remembered a conversation between Joseph and Oliver just before Oliver left the church in 1838. And this is the way President Woodruff remembered that. He said, if the president of the church or either of his counselors or any of the apostles or any other man feels in his heart that God cannot do without him, and that he is especially important to carry on the work of the Lord, he stands on slippery ground. I heard Joseph Smith say that Oliver Cowdery, who was the second apostle in the church, said to him, if I leave this church, it will fall. Said Joseph, Oliver, you try it. 
According to President Woodruff, Oliver tried it and he fell. So even very early on in 1838 years before he went into these difficulties, Oliver is already showing signs that this is going to be a challenge for him. And I should mention that Oliver does come back to the church. He rejoins in 1848 and he dies in full fellowship in 1850. But the Lord's warning him right, right from the beginning that he's going to have trouble. Now, the next part of the revelation is addressed to Hiram Smith, Joseph Smith's brother, and Samuel Smith, Joseph Smith's uh, younger brother. So older brother, younger brother. Uh, It's interesting that Hiram Smith is right next to uh, Oliver Cowdery in the revelation because the Lord says to Hiram, thou art under no condemnation and thy heart is open and thy tongue loosed, thy calling is exhortation to strengthen the church continually. Now you remember back in Doctrine and Covenants section 11, Hiram was told to hold his peace, that it wasn't time for him to serve his mission yet. And this is the point where the Lord basically says, Hiram, go for it. It's your job and your position now to teach the gospel. And Hiram actually is the person in section 124 that's appointed to replace Oliver Cowdery when Oliver leaves the church. Hiram is placed in the position Oliver was in, which is more of a co-president of the church and becomes uh, a martyr of this dispensation alongside Joseph Smith. Joseph Fielding Smith, who president of the church in the 1970s, who was a descendant of Hiram Smith, actually felt that if Oliver Cowdery had not apostatized, he would have been in Carthage jail. But because he did, the Lord says in section 124, verses 94 and 95, that all of the keys and blessings that had been placed on Oliver Cowdery were now placed on Hiram Smith, which may have included sealing his testimony with his blood. Now, the next part of this revelation is addressed to Samuel. Uh, the Lord says to Samuel, similar to Hiram, thy calling is to exhortation, to strengthen the church. Thou were not yet called this to preach before the world. Amen. And yet, it's a few weeks after this that Samuel becomes the first official missionary of the church. He's traditionally recognized as the first missionary of this dispensation. Just a couple days after this revelation was given, Samuel filled up a knapsack with copies of the Book of Mormon and goes to the areas in and around Palmyra uh, to preach the gospel. Now, Samuel was initially discouraged about his lack of success as a missionary. He only managed to give away a few copies, including one to John P. Green, a Methodist minister, who agreed to take the book on his next preaching tour to see if anyone is interested in his own copy. So, Reverend Green isn't really interested himself, but he'll take around the book and show it to people if they're interested. Now, Samuel doesn't give up just because he doesn't meet with initial success with the Green family. In fact, in a subsequent visit to the Green family, Samuel was impressed to offer a copy of the book to the matriarch of the household, a woman named Rhoda Young Green. When Samuel offered her the book, she burst into tears and asked if he would pray with her. Samuel did, and he promised that the Spirit of God would give her testimony to the things that she read. Now, he keeps working with them, and when within a year, both Rhoda and her husband were baptized. And Rhoda Young Green, I hope that name's resonating with you, introduces Samuel to her brother, Phineas Young. Phineas later recalled a meeting with Samuel and pointing out his name on a page in the Book of Mormon that listed the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon. And in response to this inquiry, according to Phineas, Samuel responded, Yes, I know that revelation to be from God, translated by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, and that my brother, Joseph Smith Jr., is a prophet, seer, and revelator. And you'll remember Phineas Young is converted by Samuel's teachings, and he later shares the book with his brother, Brigham Young. So Samuel Young is is famously not successful on his first mission, but he does plant the seeds that eventually get Brigham Young into the church. And that's kind of a big deal as we remember it. Now, as the revelation goes on, verses uh, five, six, and seven are addressed to Joseph Smith Sr., 
Joseph Smith's father, and Joseph Knight Sr., who's this important leader of the church in Colesville. Uh, so the Lord says to Joseph Smith Sr., you're under no condemnation, and thy calling is also to exhortation and strengthen the church. Now, Joseph Smith Sr. Uh, is Joseph Smith's father, and obviously that's a big deal. Joseph Smith Sr. is baptized the first day that the church is organized, and Joseph Smith later writes, I lived to see my father join the true church of Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith Sr. Um, was affiliated with a number of different religions, but kind of refused to commit to anyone. He was a seeker, and when he found out that his son had been called to organize the true church, he joins. Um, father Knight uh, here recalls uh, that after this blessing was given, a greater persecutions began to portend. In fact, in Father Knight's later recollection of church history, he said, soon after the church began to grow, the people began to be angry and to persecute and called them fools and said they were deceived. Father Knight, however, becomes an important leader in the church. His son, Newell Knight, also becomes important. Uh, and he stays faithful to the gospel his entire life. In fact, Joseph Smith Sr. dies faithful in Nauvoo. Joseph Knight Sr. dies faithful during the trek across Iowa in the spring of 1846. Both of them honored and revered in the church today. But Joseph Knight Sr., uh, his comment about persecution rising after the organization of the church really leads us into section 24 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 24 is received during a time of intense persecution. Again, the church is organized around these three locations, the Smiths in Palmyra, the Whitmer family in Fayette, the Knight family in Colesville. But during this time, persecution in Colesville was getting really, really intense. This is where Joseph Smith lives. They're just down the road in Harmony, about 10 miles away. And during the summer of 1830, some, some really difficult things started to happen. For instance, uh, Emma Smith had not been baptized as of June 1830. And she made the decision to get baptized, but opponents in the church, opponents to the church in the area tried to thwart the prophet's aims to, to perform these baptisms by tearing down a small dam they constructed in a local stream uh, to carry out the baptism. Before Joseph was able to confirm the new members of the church, he was approached by a constable who, in Joseph Smith history, quote, arrested him on a warrant on the charge of being a disorderly person and setting the country in an uproar by preaching the Book of Mormon. Now, Joseph Smith later writes in his history, the constable informed me soon after I'd been arrested that the plan of those that had got the warrant out to get me was to get me into the hands of a mob who were now lying in wait to ambush me, but that he was determined to save me from them and had found me to be the different sort of person that had been represented to him. So he takes Joseph Smith on his way to the night home and the wagon that they're traveling in actually gets surrounded by a mob. The crowd hesitates when they see the constable with Joseph and the constable is even able to drive the wagon away from the mob. Well, they're traveling away at high speed and one of the wheels actually falls off the wagon and Joseph and the constable have to jump out of the wagon and put the wheel back on while the mob is coming up behind them. Uh, in Joseph's history, he said the constable drove me on to South Bainbridge where they stayed for the night. And according to Joseph, the constable, quote, slept during the night with his feet against the door and a loaded musket by his side whilst I occupied a bed which is in the room, having declared that if we were in, 
interrupted unlawfully, he would fight for me and defend me as far in his power. Now, while Joseph is in the constable's custody, Joseph Knight is organizing witnesses to speak out on Joseph's behalf to say that he's not a disruptive person. Some of these include Josiah Stoll, who you remember from early in Joseph Smith history, is the guy that employs Joseph Smith to find a silver mine. Uh, Josiah Stoll's daughters agreed to testify on Joseph Smith's behalf, and several people from Coldville speak on Joseph Smith's behalf. Uh, Joseph Smith later recorded that Josiah Stoll's daughters, quote, bore such testimony in my favor as left my enemies without a pretext on their account. When he was acquitted, Joseph Smith is on his way out of the court when he gets served with a different warrant sworn out by enemies in Broome County, which was just nearby, and he's taken into custody by a second constable. This one's a lot more hostile towards Saint towards uh, Joseph Smith and the saints. Now, Joseph later writes about this second constable that, quote, he took me to a tavern and gathered in a number of men who used every means to abuse, ridicule, and insult me. They spit upon me. They pointed their fingers at me, saying, prophesy, prophesy, unless they did imitate those who crucified the Savior of mankind, not knowing what they did. Unquote. Now, the constable refused to let Joseph Smith spend the night at home and also refused to give him more than just a few crusts of bread and water to eat. And when it came time to sleep, he made Joseph lie next to a wall and then lay down next to him. Joseph Smith said he put his arms around me and upon moving in the least, he would clench me fast, fearing I intended to escape from him. And in this disagreeable manner, we did pass the night. Now, the next day, Joseph Smith is brought before a magistrate in Broome County and several of Joseph's friends uh, arrive in the court again to testify on his behalf, including Newell Knight. Newell Knight has just recently had Joseph Smith cast out a devil from him um, through the use of the priesthood. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Joseph later wrote that those who testified on his behalf, quote, spoke like men inspired of God, whilst those who were arrayed against me trembled under the sound of their voices and quailed before them like criminals before a bar of justice. In the second trial, Joseph is acquitted, and afterward, the constable who'd abused him during the night uh, apologized for his behavior and asked for forgiveness. So Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery start to head back to Colesville when they hear rumors again of a mob uh, that's going to attack them. And they depart from Colesville just in time to get away from the mob. Joseph wrote, our enemies pursued us. And it was oft times as much as we could do to elude them. However, we managed to get home and having traveled all night, except a short time, Joseph later recorded, during this time, we were forced to rest ourselves on our large tree by the wayside, sleeping and watching alternately. After thus, we were persecuted on account of our religious faith in a country, the constitution of which guarantees every man the indefeasible right to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience, and by men, too, who were professors of his religion. Now, it's in this context, all these persecutions, Joseph Smith has been dragged to uh, trial twice and pursued through the night by a mob uh, that section 24 comes. And section 24 mentions directly, you'll see right in verse 1, uh, that the Lord says, Thou wast called and chosen to write the Book of Mormon and to my ministry. I have lifted thee out of thine afflictions, I have counseled thee, and thou hast been delivered from thine enemies, and thou hast been delivered from the powers of Satan and from darkness. Now that literally has just happened. Joseph Smith has had all these people trying to get him in court, trying to get him in jail, trying to get a mob to, to literally beat him up or kill him. 
And the Lord says, I've delivered you, but the Lord also is chasing him a little bit. Verse two, thou, thou art not excusable in thy transgressions. Go thy way and sin no more. Magnify thy office. This is verse three. And after thou hast sowed thy fields and secured them, go speedily to the church, which is in Colesville. So the Lord is telling him, hey, you've got to get to work. You've got to preach the gospel. And part of that has to do with the tension of this is summertime, right? This is harvest. This is when Joseph Smith is supposed to be working his fields and his farms. And at the time, Joseph Smith is living on the property owned by his father-in-law, uh, Isaac Hale, Emma's father. Um, Joseph is struggling to meet his church responsibilities and also take care of his farm so that he can make enough money to pay the rent on the land that he's living on. And the Lord is trying to get him to figure out how to balance those things. Now, a famous passage from section 24 that's often quoted is verse 9, when the Lord tells Joseph Smith, in temporal labors thou shalt not have strength. This is not thy calling. Attend to thy calling, the spiritual things of the church, and thou shalt have wherewith to magnify thine office, to expound scriptures, and continue to lay on hands and confirming churches. Now, often this is taken as kind of justification for for the way Joseph Smith always struggled with, with debt, and that Joseph may have been feeling his own anxiety over taking care of his family. Now, I should note that what what has been advertised about Joseph Smith, that he's not successful at business, isn't really that accurate. We kind of have misread this passage a little bit. Joseph, throughout his life... Um, opened several businesses. He opened stores in Kurland and Nauvoo. He did kind of always struggle to make ends meet. And it was partially because of his character, partially because of his largesse, the way that he treated other people. Uh, Brigham Young later told this story where he just was sort of exasperated at how generous Joseph would be to people and kind of the catch-22 Joseph was in whenever he had a business. Uh, Brigham Young said it this way, Joseph goes to New York and buys $20,000 worth of goods, comes to Kirtland, and commences to trade. In comes one of the brethren. Brother Joseph, let me have a frock pattern for my wife. What if Joseph says, no, I cannot without the money? The consist consequences would be he's no prophet says james pretty soon thomas walks in brother joseph will you trust me for a pair of boots no i cannot let them go without the money well says thomas brother joseph is no prophet i found that out and i'm glad of it brigham young goes on after a while in comes bill with sister susan says bill brother joseph i want a shawl i have not got the money but i wish you to trust me a week or a fortnight well brother joseph thinks the others have gone and apostatized and he doesn't know that these goods will make the whole church do the same, so he lets Bill have the shawl. Bill walks off with it and meets a brother. Well, says he, what do you think of Brother Joseph? Oh, he's a first-rate man, and I fully believe he is a prophet. See here, he's trusted me with this shawl. Richard says, I think I'll go down and see if he won't trust me some. In walks Richard. Brother Joseph, I want to trade about $20. Well, says Joseph, these goods will make the people apostatize, so over they go. They are of less value than the people. Richard gets his goods. Another comes in the same way to trade of $25, and so on it goes. Brigham Young added, Joseph was a first-rate fellow with them all the time, provided he would never ask them to pay him. In this way, it's easy for us to trade away a first-rate store of goods and be in debt for them. I've known persons who would have cursed Brother Joseph to the lowest hell hundreds of times because he would not trust out everything he had on the face of the earth and let the people squander it to the four winds. When he had let many of the brother and sisters have goods on trust, he could not meet his liabilities. And they would turn around and say, what's the matter, Brother Joseph? Why don't you pay your debts? It's quite a curiosity that you don't pay your debts. You must be a bad financier and you don't know how to handle the things of this world. At the same time, the coats, pants, dresses, boots, and shoes 
that they and their families were wearing came out of Brother Joseph's store, and they were not paid for when they were cursing him for not paying his debts. That's from the Complete Discourse of Brigham Young, page 601, uh, just so you know. But Joseph seems to have struggled in business, not because he was a bad businessman, but because of his largesse, because he was concerned with people's souls. And people, according to Brigham Young, took advantage of that. Now, Brigham Young, as you know, was a little bit more tight with people, and there's still some lingering resentment over that among certain people in the church today. But when the Lord says to Joseph Smith, you're not going to have strength in temporal labors, this may have been a foreshadowing of that. It also may have been the Lord's way of saying, hey, I know you're worried about your family and your father-in-law, but I need you to see to the needs of the members of the church first. Now, the second half of section 24 of the Doctrine and Covenants is given to Oliver Cowdery. And Oliver gets a lot of the same warnings here too, uh, to beware of pride and to focus on the church. In verses 13 and 14, the Lord tells Oliver, require not miracles, except I shall command you, except casting out devils, healing the sick and against poisonous serpents and deadly poisons. And these things she shall not do, except it be required of you by them who desire that the scriptures might be fulfilled, for ye shall do according to that which is written. Now, it's likely that when the Lord says to Oliver, hey, don't require the casting out of devils unless it's necessary, Oliver may have been struggling a little bit with jealousy over Joseph Smith. Around this time, the first miracle in the church was performed. Newell Knight, this is the son of Joseph Knight Sr., who we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, was having some great difficulty praying publicly in church meetings. And according to Newell's own recollection, he went to a nearby wood and he made several attempts to pray when he began to feel mentally and physically unwell. When he returned home, Newell's wife was alarmed at his appearance and she calls Joseph Smith for help. So Joseph Smith shows up and he later writes, I went and found him, Newell Knight, suffering very much in mind and his body acted upon in a very strange manner. His visage and his limbs distorted and twisted in every shape and appearance possible to imagine. And finally, he was caught up off the floor of the apartment and tossed about most fearfully. After the, he had thus suffered for a time, I succeeded in getting hold of him by the hand when almost immediately he spoke to me and with great earnestness requested of me that I should cast the devil out of him, saying that he knew it was in him and also that he knew I could cast him out. I replied, if you know that I can, it shall be done. And then almost unconsciously, I rebuked the devil and commanded him in the name of Jesus Christ to depart from him. When immediately Newell spoke out and said that he saw the devil leave him and vanish for the night. Now, Joseph Smith later writes in his history, this was the first miracle which was done in this church or by any member of it. And it was not done, not by the power of, uh, not by man or the power of man, but was done by God and by the power of godliness. Uh, during Joseph Smith's trial, Newell Knight actually comes and testifies in Joseph Smith's behalf. According to Newell Knight's own history, the judge in the trial asked Newell Knight if Joseph had cast the devil out of him. And Newell replied, no, sir, it was done by the power of God. Joseph Smith was just the instrument in the hands of God on this occasion. He commanded him out of me in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the remainder of this revelation um, addresses a couple things like uh, the dusting of the feet. For instance, verse 15, the Lord says, Whatsoever place ye shall enter, and they receive you not in my name, ye shall leave it cursing instead of a blessing, by casting off the dust of your feet against them as a testimony, and cleansing your feet by the wayside. Now, there's a lot of folklore uh, surrounding this. Um, I remember when I was a missionary hearing a lot about the dusting 
of the feet. And it is something that appears in the New Testament and is is mentioned by the Savior to the ancient apostles. In fact, James E. Talmadge addresses this in Jesus the Christ, and he gives a pretty good solid apostolic commentary on what it means to shake the dust off your feet. Uh, James E. Talmadge said, to ceremonially shake the dust off one's feet as a testimony against another was understood by the Jews to symbolize a cessation of fellowship and a renunciation of all responsibility for consequences that might follow. It became an ordinance of accusation and testimony by the Lord's instructions to his apostles as cited in the text. In the current dispensation, the Lord has similarly directed his authorized servants to so testify against those who willfully and maliciously oppose the truth when authoritatively presented to them. The responsibility of testifying before the Lord in this accusing symbol is so great that the means may be employed only under unusual and extreme conditions as the Spirit of the Lord may direct. So, Elder Talmadge is saying this isn't a normal thing. It was a very serious thing and only to be used when someone willfully and maliciously opposed the truth. At the same time, it's not only mentioned here in section 24, the ordinance of shaking the dust of the feet is mentioned in section 60, 75, 84 and section 99. It's also found throughout the history of the church. The earliest mention is actually Samuel Smith. Samuel H. Smith, the first missionary of the church, um, it mentions uh, in Joseph Smith's history that the, following the organization of the church, Samuel takes some copies of the Book of Mormon, goes out on his mission, and travels about 25 miles. Now, Joseph Smith in his history mentions that when the evening came faint on, he was he was discouraged and was coming to an inn, which was surrounded by every appearance of plenty. And he called to see if the landlord would buy one of his books. On going in, Samuel inquired of him if he did not wish to purchase a history of the origin of the Indians. I do not know, replied the host. How did you get a hold of it? It was translated, enjoined Samuel, by my brother from some gold plates he found buried in the earth. The guy swears at him and calls him a liar. And the landlord says, get out of my house. You shan't stay one minute with your books. According to Joseph Smith, Samuel was sick at heart, for this was the fifth time he'd been turned out of doors that day. He left the house and traveled a short distance and washed his feet in a small brook as a testimony against the man. He then proceeded five miles on his journey and seeing an apple tree in a short distance from the road, he concluded to pass the night under it. And here he lay all night upon the cold, damp ground. A few weeks later, Samuel was traveling with his father and mother near the tavern where he was rejected. And just before they came to the house, the tavern where the landlord uh, rejected Samuel, a sign of smallpox intercepted him. They turned aside and meeting a citizen of this place, they inquired of him to what extent this disease prevailed. He answered that the tavern keeper and two of his family had died and it not long since. And he he did not know that anybody else had caught the distemper, but that it was brought into the neighborhood by a traveler who stopped at the tavern overnight. So the the washing of the feet is a real thing. Like Talmud says, we're not supposed to use it unless it's a very serious situation. But this is one instance with the very first missionary in the history of the church where someone willfully and maliciously rejected the gospel. And so Samuel Smith felt justified in initiating that ordinance. Now, moving on to section 25. Um, this intense period of persecution where Joseph Smith is arrested twice and pursued by mobs also takes an emotional toll on his wife, Emma Smith. And section 25 of the Doctrine and Covenants is received during this point in time when Emma is really struggling. These trials exacted a high emotional toll on Emma. In fact, Joseph's lawyer, John S. Reed, the one who was with Joseph at all these trials, actually stopped in to check on Emma to see how she was doing. He said later that, 
Quote, her face was wet with tears and her very heartstrings were broken with grief. Uh, unquote. So in the midst of these problems, uh, it makes sense that Joseph would have approached Emma and given her blessing. Again, at this point, uh, Emma has been baptized, but she hasn't been confirmed a member of the church. They didn't do those on the same day. She doesn't get confirmed till around section 27 of the Doctrine and Doctrine and Covenants is given, which is a little bit later on. But this revelation, section 25, um, is significant and special. It's the only revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants that's given specifically uh, to a woman. And again, most revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants don't specify gender and are given just to all people. But this one is given specifically to Emma. And because of its unique nature, it's been taken and kind of uh, categorized as a revelation to all women in the church. For instance, President Gordon B. Hinckley uh, spoke about this revelation. He said, quote, I want to remind you of a great and remarkable revelation given through the prophet Joseph Smith to his wife, Emma, and applicable to every woman in the church. For the Lord said in concluding this revelation, this is my voice unto all. In the first verse of this revelation, the Lord states that all those who receive my gospel are sons and daughters in my kingdom. Great and true are the words of divine promise. The revelation which follows these opening words is rich in counsel, in praise and instruction, and in promise to Emma Smith and to every other woman who heeds the voice of the Lord as set forth therein. That's President Hinckley from the October 1991 General Conference. Now, President Hinckley takes this revelation again, expands it and says, yes, it's a revelation to Emma Smith, but it's really a revelation to every woman in the church and every woman in the church should read and be familiar with its contents. So it starts out with a couple things. The Lord calls Emma Smith his daughter in verse one, saying, all those who receive my gospel are sons and daughters in my kingdom. He says multiple times, all those who receive my gospel are sons. It's just nice to have daughters added in. And then starting in verse two, a revelation I give you concerning my will. If thou art faithful and walk in the paths of virtue before me, I will preserve thy life and thou shalt receive an inheritance in Zion. Thy sins are forgiven thee and thou art an elect lady whom I have called. Now the Lord doesn't explain exactly what it means when he calls Emma an elect lady here. Uh, To get the meaning of that, you have to actually fast forward 12 years. In 12 years, in 1842, after this revelation was given, uh, Joseph Smith explains the meaning of this prophecy. Um, Emma Smith is at a meeting where they organize the Nauvoo Relief Society, the precursor to all the relief societies we have in the church today. According to the minutes of the Nauvoo Relief Society, President Smith read the revelation to Emma Smith from the Book of Doctrine and Covenants and stated that she was ordained. Now, they use ordained a little bit differently back then. This would be closer to set apart. But Joseph Smith says she was ordained at the time, the revelation given to expound the scriptures to all and to teach the female part of the community. Uh, Joseph Smith's journal on the same day records that he gave much instruction. He read the New Testament, the Book of Doctrine and Covenants, and he also read concerning the elect lady, showing that elect meant to be elected to a certain work, she having previously been ordained to expound the scriptures. And then at that same meeting, Joseph reads section 25 and adds, quote, that not Emma alone, but others may attain the same blessings found in the Revelation, section 25. Now, there's a couple parts of this revelation that are general to women in the church and some that are specific to Emma. For instance, verses 4, 5, and 6 are addressed to Emma. The Lord tells her, Murmur not because of the things which thou hast not seen. They are withheld from thee and from the world, which is wisdom in me for a time to come. The office of thy calling shall be for a comfort unto thy husband, Joseph Smith, Jr., thy husband in his afflictions with consoling words and the spirit of meekness. Go with him at the time of his going. 
And while there's no one to scribe for him, that I may send my servant Oliver Cowdery whithersoever I will. Now, we don't always fully appreciate how involved Emma Smith was in the early history of the church. She is there at the Hill Cumorah the night Joseph Smith receives the plates. She's the earliest scribe of the Book of Mormon, and she acts as the scribe on and off while while Joseph Smith is working through the translation process. Here, the Lord instructs her to scribe while Oliver Cowdery has been called to preach, and she becomes one of the most important witnesses of the Book of Mormon later on. In fact, she's interviewed uh, in the last days of her life by her son, Joseph Smith III, who just asked her point blank, do you think that father, Joseph Smith, could have made up the Book of Mormon? Emma's answer is, my belief is that the Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. I'm satisfied that no man could have dictated the writing of the manuscripts unless he was inspired. For when acting as a scribe, your father would dictate to me hour after hour. And when returning after meals or after interruptions, he could at once begin where he had left off without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. This was a usual thing for him to do. It would have been improbable that a learned man could do this. For one so ignorant and unlearned as he was, it was simply impossible. Now, Emma is there, and she gives this great account of Joseph Smith translating the scriptures. But when the Lord says, murmur not because of the things you have not seen, it might have to do with the fact that Emma was not chosen as one of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon, and as far as we know, does not see the plates. In fact, she was asked by her son if she ever saw the plates. Her answer was, quote, the plates often lay on the table without any attempt at concealment, wrapped in a small linen tablecloth, which I had given him to fold them in. I once felt of the plates as they lay on the table, tracing their outline and shape. They seemed to be pliable like thick paper and would rustle with a metallic sound when the edges were moved by the thumb, as one does sometimes with the sometimes thumb the edges of a book. So she actually uh, feels the plates through this linen tablecloth that she gives to Joseph Smith. But she is so faithful, she does not actually lift up the tablecloth and look. And the Lord's just kind of saying here, hey, just don't don't complain because of the things you haven't seen. I have other blessings for you. Now, part of the Lord's counsel to Emma, too, to go with Joseph Smith at the time of his going, might have reference to the tension that was growing between Emma's family and Joseph's prophetic calling. Emma's uncle, Nathaniel Lewis, was a Methodist minister uh, that lived in the area and may have been responsible for some of the persecutions Joseph Smith dealt with in the summer of 1830. Emma's father, Isaac Hale, was really antagonistic towards the work. He later calls the Book of Mormon a silly fabrication of falsehood and wickedness. And a month after this revelation is given, Uh, In August of 1830, Emma and Joseph leave Harmony, and they never come back. Emma never really sees her family again. Her father passes away a few years later, and Emma doesn't get a chance to see him. Now, as the revelation goes on, Emma Smith is ordained, which again, ordained in the usage in 1830 was closer to set apart. We use ordained today to talk about... uh, giving someone the priesthood or priesthood office. This just meant a general setting apart, but it's interesting that Emma was told she was going to expound scriptures and exhort the church, that she was going to receive the Holy Ghost. This has reference to her confirmation and that she would receive support from her husband because she seems to have been dealing with the same anxiety Joseph did. Like, can I manage the church and can I also uh, have my temporal needs met? Now, Emma plays an active role in all these things. In fact, one of the things the Lord tells her to do specifically is to make a selection of sacred hymns. This is verse 11, as it shall be given thee, which is pleasing unto me to be had in my church. Emma 
literally fulfills this. Um, five years after this revelation is given, Emma publishes the first Latter-day Saint hymn book. This little tiny hymnal, which is only a couple inches wide by a couple inches wide, uh, is divided into sections titled Sacred Hymns, Morning Hymns, Evening Hymns, Farewell Hymns, on Baptism, on Sacrament, on Marriage, and Miscellaneous. In fact, this hymn book, which is the the nexus, the the start of every hymn book that the church has produced since then has a number of uh, hymns that are still standards in the church today. Like the first time the spirit of God, like a fire is burning was published, uh, was in Emma Smith's hymn book. So was Redeemer of Israel. These are both written by W.W. Phelps and are still used by Latter-day Saints around the world. Now there's other hymns uh, in Emma Smith's hymn book that we don't use. For instance, she had a hymn called Oh Stop and Tell Me Red Man, which was intended to talk about um, American Indians and their prophetic destiny uh, because of the Book of Mormon. She also included um, a few beloved hymns by Christians. For instance, the first hymn book had Joy to the World. Uh, In the text of the original Latter-day Saint hymn, the original words of Joy to the World were adapted to read, uh, instead of the Lord is come, the Lord will come, and instead of heaven and nature sing, uh, they changed the text to read, and saints and angels sing. Though it was really small, this launches the great Latter-day Saint tradition of hymnal music. And Latter-day Saints still um, use hymns, basically, to share the gospel, to uplift everyone. In the words of Lord Sam Smith, my soul uh, delighteth in the song of the heart. The song of the righteous is a prayer to me, and it shall be answered with a blessing on their heads. That's verse 12. The First Presidency actually quotes this in the introduction to the 1985 hymn book. And most of you are probably aware that right now the church is producing a new hymn book. Uh, they actually asked for um, selections for, for submissions from members of the church around the world. They announced last summer that they had received 16,000 <laughs> submissions and they were trying to winnow it down to uh, just a few hundred that would be in the hymn book, probably around 300, which is what we have right now. Now, at the end of section 25, Emma Smith receives a warning. Uh, the Lord says, Lift up your heart and rejoice. This is verse 13. And cleave unto the covenants which thou hast made. Continue in the spirit of meekness and beware of pride. Let thy soul delight in thy husband and the glory which shall come upon him. Keep my commandments continually and a crown of righteousness thou shalt receive. And except thou do this where I am, you cannot come. And verily I say unto you, this is my voice unto all. Amen. Now this end part of uh, counsel uh, comes to Emma. And you'll remember, uh, especially some older members of the church, that Emma hasn't always been seen as the venerated figure she has right now. Um, Emma has been vilified at some points, um, as late as the 1940s. For instance, in a Relief Society room, we'd have portraits up of all the Relief Society presidents except Emma. In the last couple of years, I'm I'm happy to say that her her testimony has been uh, venerated, that she's been looked at as one of the important witnesses of the Book of Mormon, and been judged for the good things that she did. Now, it's it's an oversimplification to vilify or venerate Emma. She was really, really complex. And also during her marriage, she endures intense adversity and persecution. She understandably struggles with the introduction and practice of plural marriage. In fact, another section of the Doctrine and Covenants is addressed to her, section 132, which introduces the practice of uh, eternal marriage, also of plural marriage, which Emma really, really had a hard time with. Now, some people have, have commented on the fact that Emma doesn't come west um, and that Emma left the church. It's not correct to say she she left the church. She's never excommunicated. 
or anything like that. In fact, people would visit her throughout her life. She just kind of stays behind in Nauvoo after the saints move west. Uh, one visitor that spoke to Emma um, apparently was told by her, quote, I've always avoided talking to my children about anything to do with the church, for I've suffered so much I've dreaded them to take any part of it. However, part of the reason why Emma didn't go west uh, was because she had to stay behind, she felt, and take care of Lucy Mac Smith, Joseph Smith's mother, who was uh, fairly advanced in age and needed someone to stay behind and take care of her. In fact, Lucy Mac Smith gives this tribute to Emma. She said, quote, I've never seen a woman in my life who would endure every species of fatigue and hardship month to month and from year to year with that unflinching courage, zeal, and patience, which she has always done. For I know that which she has to endure and that she has been tossed upon the ocean of uncertainty. She has breasted the storm of persecution and buffeted the rage of men and devils until she has been swallowed up in a sea of trouble, which would have borne down almost any other woman. And I should also point out that before we criticize Emma Smith, um, Joseph Smith loved her. Near the end of his life, Joseph Smith wrote about Emma Smith and how important she had been to him. He wrote, quote, with what unspeakable delight and what transports of joy swelled my bosom when I took by the hand that night my beloved Emma. She was my wife, even the wife of my youth, the choice of my heart. Many were the reverberations of my mind when I contemplated for a moment the many scenes which we had been called to pass through, the fatigues, the toils, the sorrows, the sufferings, and the joys and consolations from time to time had strewed our path and crowned our board. Oh, what a commingling of thought filled my mind for a moment. And there she is, even in the seventh trouble, undaunted, firm, unwavering, unchangeable, affectionate Emma. That's from Joseph Smith's journal, uh, December of 1841, December of 1842, page 164. And you can look that up on the Joseph Smith papers. Um, I know we still have complex feelings over Emma. I just want to say that I love Emma and I'm very grateful for the sacrifices she endured for the things that she went through and for the example she is to the women of the church and all the things that she's done for, for us. So before we criticize, let's put ourselves in her shoes and understand the immense pressure that she was under throughout her entire life, the persecutions she had to endure, and look upon her uh, charitably. Emma is a remarkable, remarkable woman, a great person, and someone that we should all uh, love and respect if we love and respect uh, Joseph Smith and the restoration of the gospel. Now, one last stop in our Come Follow Me, that's section 26. This is a short little section um, that Joseph Smith receives, only two verses long, but it does introduce an important concept in the church, okay? Um, Joseph Smith, again, during this time, is traveling around, taking care of the different branches of the church in New York and Pennsylvania. Uh, he's struggling a little bit because... Uh, he, he needs to pay uh, his rent to his landlord, which is also his father-in-law, who doesn't like his prophetic calling and his work. Uh, so the Lord, again, has to remind him, verse 1, Let your time be devoted to studying the scriptures and to preaching and confirming the church at Colesville. And the Lord also tells him to perform your labors on the land, such as required, until you should go to the west to hold the next conference, and then it shall be made unto you, known unto you what to do. Joseph does eventually leave. That's what the Lord alluding to here. But then the Lord introduces a really important concept in the church. Verse 2, all things shall be done by common consent in the church with much prayer and faith 
for all things you shall receive by faith. Amen. It's really, really short here, but this idea of common consent is something we participate in almost every single Sunday. Uh, the beginning of almost every church meeting, uh, the bishop or a member of the bishopric or a member of the high council or uh, an ecclesiastical leader will stand up and ask us to raise our right arm uh, to sustain a person or if there's any uh, concerns or objections, raise our hand then. This is the law of common consent, that in the church, the Lord does call the officers and leaders of the church by revelation, but it's important that they receive a sustaining vote from the, from the members of the church in their callings. Uh, Joseph F. Smith explained, this is an important duty resting upon the saints who sustain the authorities of the church to do so, not only by the lifting of a hand in mere form, but indeed and in truth. And you remember a couple of years ago, uh, President Russell Nelson gave a talk about this in General Conference where he talked about sustaining what it means and, and why it's important that we don't just kind of, you know, uh, sleepwalk through that part of church. That when they say, raise your hand, you need to be listening carefully and actively participating. President George Albert Smith said, quote, the obligation that we make when we raise our hands is a most sacred one. It does not mean that we will go quietly on our way and be willing that the prophet of the Lord shall direct this work, but it means that we shall stand behind him, that we will pray for him, that we will defend his good name, and we will strive to carry out his instructions as the Lord shall direct. President Nilsson read that in 2014 and then added this, quote, when we sustain prophets and other leaders, we invoke the law of common consent. Our sustaining of prophets is a personal commitment that we will do our utmost to uphold their prophetic priorities. Our sustaining is an oath-like indication that we recognize their calling as a prophet to be legitimate and binding on us. So keep in mind, whether it's uh, watching a general conference on TV or attending your own sacrament meeting, that when you are asked to raise your arm to the square, uh, to, to put your hand up and sustain the leaders of the church, you are being asked to make a, uh, an, an oath, an obligation. You're making a promise that you're going to uphold them and defend them if needs be and protect them. Uh, I love and and deeply appreciate the opportunity uh, that I have every single time to raise my hand. And and I'm grateful for the leaders that I have in my life. I had had the opportunity to be on that side to serve as a leader and also had the opportunity to sustain them. And in every case, it's a great thing that the Lord calls ordinary men and women to lead the church and to help and guide us. So let's put this all together. Uh, sections 23 to 26 come during a time of intense persecution. But the Lord constantly told Emma and Joseph and Oliver and Samuel Harrison Smith and all the people in these revelations that he was there for them, that they were going to make it through the persecutions and that they were going to receive blessings. Some of these blessings uh, came right away. Samuel Smith is told to wait, but almost immediately given the green light to go on his mission. Some of these blessings were fulfillments of blessings that had been given earlier. In section 11, Hiram Smith was told to hold his peace and seek not to declare the word, and then here the Lord says, go ahead, it's your time to declare it. Emma was called an elect lady, but it wasn't until 12 years later that she was able to fulfill that blessing. And all throughout her life, this blessing in section 25 is fulfilled in little ways where she gets the chance to teach, to lead, and also to use her talents to do things like prepare the hymn book. Most important thing for us to remember 
and take away from these sections is that the Lord knows every single one of us. He knew that Joseph Smith was worried about taking care of his family. And he knew that Emma Smith was worried about her family, about her husband, about what her role was going to be in the church. The leaders of the church, the people all around us are human and we need to uplift and support them. And so lastly, in section 26, the Lord puts in place this way that we can show our support and our love and our help for those that have been called to lead us. Just a simple act of raising our hand and saying, I sustain you and I support you. It's my testimony that the Lord lives, that he loves us, that the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants are true revelations from God, and that this is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So thank you very much for being with me. I hope you had a great experience. And I also hope you'll keep coming back to our podcast, that you'll subscribe and leave us a review if that's possible to help us grow the podcast and help more people learn a little bit more about the scriptures. My name is Casey Paul Griffiths, and I've been sitting in for David Ridges, and this has been the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me podcast.